0: to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
1: I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Uh, it is no surprise to me to see this room packed Surprise uh, I, think, to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think all of you know that uh, Rick Hertzberg is one of the nation's most uh, prolific, insightful, and long-lived uh, political prognosticators. He began here at Harvard, of course, as all great things do. Um, he was a fellow at the IOP in the Shorenstein Center. And he is someone who has now, for the last number of years, been the, the political voice in the um, in In many respects, in the New Yorker, and a very influential one at that, um, his topic today is uh, at least we 're going to begin with something that has been a real focus and interest of his for a number of years, which is the the difficulty of electing uh, a president uh, in a fair kind of way with the system, the infrastructure that we have um, but I think that uh, I don't really know exactly what he's going to talk about, but I think that when the questioning begins... You're not the only one. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the floor will be open to all subjects. So with that, let me say two quick things. One, if you have a cell phone, please... uh, I'm going to follow my own good example. Mm -hmm. Turn it off or mute it. And um, when the questioning begins, please identify yourself. And with that, Rick, the floor is yours. Welcome. We're very glad to have you. Thank you.
2: Thank you all for coming. Wow. What a turnout. Um, I'm going to have to try. I hope you could all hear me. I wish we had a microphone so my voice is a little rusty. Well, it's really great to be back in, in Cambridge um, the first time I came here which was I think in about 1959 or 1960 to go to a, to a big reading at, in Memorial Hall with Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlowski and Gregory Corso um, I remember being astounded just walking around I had never seen so many intelligent faces <laughs> and uh, I knew I had to, had to get here somehow um, as Alex said, I was I was the early either the earliest or the second earliest fellow of of the Shorenstein <laughs> Center, uh, which which was <clears throat> which was in the other building in a tiny you know, three or four rooms. Nelson Polsby was in charge, and then uh, Marvin Kalb. Um, it was a great place for me to cover the 1988 presidential campaign from. Uh, I had, you know, I could go to the squash courts, I could go to the library, uh, I had wonderful colleagues all over the place, all the presidential candidates came to the Kennedy School uh, to be interviewed, and Marvin and I did a little book uh, as a result, and, uh, and of course the, the candidate, uh, the Democratic candidate, was, was, a, was a, a Kennedy School faculty member and, um, and was just down the road, his headquarters. So it's so 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 good to be back <coughs> I'm, I'm going to just talk about a couple of of uh, something broad and something narrow. The broad thing is just the general um, the thing that's interested me more and more in recent years is the constitutional system, and I see that as and that, by that I mean the written constitution and all the unwritten parts, too, the way that we, that we govern ourselves. And I think so much of what's wrong is directly traceable to that. Uh, and, and I'm glad to see, I mean, I, th- I think I, uh, the, the, the notion is usually that if we could just get the right president, everything is going to be fine. Uh, we have a kind of cult of the presidency when you run for president the 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 machine that elects our presidents is a machine for creating disappointment uh, because when you run for president you you have to buy into this notion of presidential omnipotence and you say well when i'm president we're going to have we're going to have a the greatest health system in the world that's how you, you run for president that way you don't run for president saying when I'm president, we're going to have to do a lot of ghastly compromising and, and we're going to come up with a, a really complicated system because we have to buy off all these different interests to get this thing through. And it won't, it'll, it'll be better than what we've got. It's not going to be that great, but it'll be better than what we've got. You can't give that campaign speech and get elected. So much of it is due to the framers who... Who were, who were at the cutting edge of political technology in their day. And I, I, I respect and honor them, and we all should respect and honor them, but more than that, we should probably imitate them. Instead of worshiping them, instead of building temples to them, we should try to be like them and, and think boldly about, about our system. And I want to read, if if you'll be patient with me, I want to read three things, or two or three things, um, from the framers, the um, when they were doing the Constitution, uh, when they were when they were writing the Constitution. Um, well, for one thing, it was a, the Constitution was illegal. We already had a Constitution we had the we had the we we had the articles of confederation for perpetual union which which said that the constitution had to be the, the, the this that constitution the articles of confederation could only be changed by the, the unanimous vote of all 13 states but the constitutional convention just ignored that and and wrote a completely new constitution, and got away with it uh, largely because George Washington was the chairman, was the or as the, the, the term, the, the the title he was given was president. And by the way, that title was chosen because it seemed unthreatening. Uh, same was the with the choice of president for the president of the United States. The message that was sent by that title, was supposed to be a, a sort of chairman, you know, a kind of presider, not a boss. Uh, that's why they didn't call him the governor of the United States. After the Constitution was, uh, was written and hammered out and sent to the states for ratification, <clears throat> somebody wrote a letter to, to George Washington complaining about this and that and the other thing that was in the Constitution. And he wrote back, and let me, let me just quote if I can find it here. Um, he wrote back and he said, in part, I am not a blind admirer, for I saw the imperfections of the Constitution I aided in the birth of before it was handed to the public, and I am fully persuaded that it is the best that can be obtained at this time, that it is free from many of the implica- imperfections with which it is charged, and that it is disunion, that it, that it or disunion is before us to choose from. So he, and then he adds, if the first is our election, that is, if disunion, uh, if, if, uh, if, if ratification is our choice, when the defects of it are experienced, a constitutional door is open for amendments and may be adopted in a peaceable manner without tumult or disorder." So right from the beginning, uh, it, Washington himself recognized the imperfections of it and put his hopes in, in the, the process of amendment, which we, which we think of as very difficult, amending the Constitution. But compared to what it was when the Articles of Confederation, it was a breeze. The other point I want to make on this is that is that we should be wary of the Federalist Papers. The Federalist Papers have become part of the holy scripture of American democracy and are quoted endlessly. But what is often forgotten is that the Federalist Papers were op-ed pieces written to sell a particular compromise. And the reason and the arguments in the Federalist Papers are all the high-minded arguments. They're not. Uh, they're not the. They're not. They don't reflect what really happened. And uh, for example, the, the the Senate, the equality of the states in the Senate, each each state getting two senators. Now it happens that Madison absolutely hated that. He absolutely hated it. It was almost a deal breaker for him. Um, he finally had to swallow hard and accept it. Um, but, and the same is true of uh, of uh, Hamilton. He hated it too. As a matter of fact, Hamilton. Here's here's what Hamilton wrote about the this, the idea of, well, it wasn't. He actually wasn't writing about the Senate. This is not a Federalist where he's attacking the Articles of Confederation. And he wrote about the notion that a minority could prevail over a majority, which is inherent in the idea of the Senate. Um, He said, to give a minority a negative upon the majority, which is always the case, where more than a majority is requisite to a decision, is in its tendency to subject the sense of the greater number to that of the latter, the lesser. In the emergencies of a nation in which the goodness or badness, the weakness or strength of its government, is of the greatest importance, there is commonly a necessity for action. The public business must in some way or other go forward. If a pertinacious minority can control the opinion of a majority, respecting the best mode of conducting it, the majority, in order that something may be done, must conform to the views of the minority, and thus the sense of the smaller number will overrule that of the greater and give a tone to the national proceedings. Hence, and this will sound familiar if you read the papers lately, (laughs) tedious delays, continual negotiation and intrigue, contemptible compromises of the public good, And yet, in such a system, it is even happy when such compromises can take place, for upon some occasions, things will not admit admit of accommodation. And then the measures of government must be injuriously suspended or fatally defeated. It is often by the impracticability of obtaining the concurrence of the necessary number of votes kept in a state of inaction. Its situation must always savor of weakness, sometimes border upon anarchy. That's what we're looking at right now. Um, Now, the uh, the the third thing I want to say about uh, about in this broader in this broader uh, sense is has to do with the way we choose the president. Um, This too, we're taught in civics class. I'm sure everyone here is more sophisticated than this, but what, what we're taught in civics class and what you still hear. Is that the the purpose of the electoral college system was to was to prevent mob rule was to um, was to entrust the, such an important choice to 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 well informed uh, citizens, not to the to the unwatched masses, uh, and that that. Um, that the electoral college system was adopted in order to protect the interests of the smaller states. Those—that's what we're taught about it. the The truth is, the truth is, that it was adopted in order to protect slavery. Uh, the 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 compromise, uh, the 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 three-fifths, the, the notorious three-fifths rule, which, which. Um, Which determined the 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 makeup of the House was simply imported wholesale into the choice of the president, and that uh, and and this is I'm not just speculating about this. Madison himself gave a speech at the Constitutional Convention, in which he pretty much laid it out. He never mind all that nonsense about being afraid of mob rule. That's simply that's simply untrue. the, the, the framers were, were, had no problem with the popular election of executives. That's how the governors, in most of the states, were elected. That's how the Constitution itself was adopted. And Madison, was in, Madison tended to be in favor of electing the president by popular vote, he said. And this is from his, uh, his diary of the, of the uh, Constitutional Convention. The people, at, and he's, he's talking about himself in the third person, The people at large was his opinion, in his opinion, the fittest in itself to make this choice. This is Hamilton quoting himself. It would be as likely as any that could be devised to produce an executive magistrate of distinguished character. The people generally could only know and vote for some citizen whose merits had rendered him an object of general attention and esteem. There was one difficulty, however, of a serious nature attending an immediate choice by the people, and he puts this very delicately here. The right of suffrage was much more diffusive in the northern than the southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed, on the whole, to be liable to the fewest objections." And not just that, but Madison also, uh, M- also half-seriously uh, s- said that the, the House is supposed to represent the people, the Senate, the states. Uh, the Senate is, is a gift to the, to the small states. But Madison said that the real division in the country was not really between large states and small states. It was between uh, slave states and free states. And he half seriously, I think I'm not sure how seriously proposed that it's, that the two houses be organized on that basis that the lower house uh, the lower house be be elected by vote uh, to represent the, the interests of the, of the people or at least the voting people, and that the upper house should should be, uh, should be elected. Um, with the three-fifths rule, so that the upper house would represent the slave interest and the lower house would represent the free interest, that was that was the real division. So that gets us to the to the uh, to the to, to the to the way that the electoral uh, system, the electoral college system, which um, was uh, was conceived in sin. <laughs> <laughs> um now we've for for a very long time the public has wanted to get rid of it has wanted to elect the president the way we elect everybody else uh, We came close a couple of times particularly after the uh after the nineteen sixty eight election when everybody pretty much everybody was on board for a constitutional amendment to to change to popular election, uh, Nixon was for it. Um, the Republicans were for it. The Democrats were for it. The House passed it overwhelmingly. It had it had uh, it had overwhelming support in the Senate too, and it was blocked by a filibuster by Sam Irvin, later the uh, the hero of Watergate. And so, it's people have pretty much given up hope uh, of doing something about it. Now, let me ask let me ask you all how many of you have heard of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. I'd say that's about, you know, 10%. This is how we're going to change this. Uh, this is a reform that can happen with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is a treaty among the states. It's an interstate compact like the Port Authority of New York, agreement among states. And the states, here's how it works. The states pass, the the Constitution only says one thing about choosing the president. Um, It it says that that, uh, a number of electors shall be appointed in such manner as the state legislatures shall determine. That's all it says, nothing else. The state legislatures have to, in 48 states, uh, eventually, after experimenting with various other things, eventually came around to uh, state laws that, that give all of the state's electoral electors to whoever wins the popular vote in that state. Pretty obvious reason why, if, if, it's the, if it's the state legislature who's deciding, the party that's in a majority of the state legislature does not want to share that state's electoral votes with uh, with, with the other. Um, even w- when Virginia went to this system, uh, Jefferson wrote that it was terrible. He, he thought it was awful but that if the other states were going to do it, it would be ridiculous and suicidal for Virginia to not do it at all. That would be unilateral disarmament. But under this interstate compact, the states that sign up to it agree that they will cast that they will appoint their electors for whoever wins the popular vote, not in the, their state, necessarily, but in the entire nation. Now, if you can get enough states to say this, to, to agree to this, to make 270 electoral votes, that's when this compact comes into effect. And from that moment on, the, the only imp- the, the, the President would be chosen by the vote of the entire nation. Now, this had to be explained to me two or three times before I got it through my head. So has anybody, is, is, is that clear to everyone how that works?
1: That the, it is the national popular winner who gets all of the electoral votes, no matter whether that, that person won that particular state or not.
2: All of the electoral votes in the compacting states. <laughs> yes. And since the compacting states add up to the, to 270, it, the election is guaranteed to the winner of the national popular vote. And it doesn't matter if you live in a state that's not compacting; your vote counts just the same as it as it does as a vote does in the states that are compacting. Now it's really hard. It's it's really hard to kind of get. We're so in, we're so we're we're so marinated in this electoral column. College system that it's it's actually hard to to grok this this particular idea. Um, when you get it, it's, it's a real aha moment. Here's a way we can here's a way that we can uh, that we can elect the president democratically. We don't have to change a word of the Constitution. We do it. It's done through state legislatures. There's a long history of state of, of reforms that came about, beginning at the state level when the when the 19th Amendment was passed, uh, giving the votes to women. Women already had the votes in a lot of states. Women were already voting for president among other offices in in a lot of states already. Uh, the, this. Interstate Compact, which you, which, which, 80% of you say you've never heard of, is halfway to happening. In fact, it's more than halfway. It's 60% of the way. It's been adopted by uh, 11 states in the District of Columbia. Massachusetts is among the states that have adopted it. And it could, so far the states that have adopted it are all blue states. But it does have a lot of Republican support, and the Republican support uh, officially, the Republicans are against it. There was a plank in the Republican platform uh, saying it was a bad thing, Uh, and but Republicans and Republicans have assumed that this is that this is payback for two thousand. But when they think about it, many of them. Come to the conclusion that it's a pretty good idea. Uh, increasingly, especially now that there's that there's a lot of uh, talk, <coughs> mostly just talk, but it, but there's something to it. That the that the electoral map favors the Democrats. That the, the swing state model favors the, the Democrats right now. And that's a powerful argument uh, among Republicans. It doesn't seem to bother Democrats that much, but it it. Um, it's a powerful argument for Republicans. And there are Republicans, in, when this bill passed in the New York State Senate, it got an overwhelming majority of Republican as well as uh, Democratic votes. And there are, there are, some, there are some Republican, uh, fairly prominent Republicans, who are in favor of it. Uh, Newt Gingrich is a recent convert, and he's actually helping to, to campaign for it. Um, Fred Thompson... Uh, there, there, there are quite a few of them. The effect of this reform would be, would be enormous, and it would, it would be enormous move toward civic health in this, in our country. It would, uh, it would mean that there would be no, there'd be no more battleground states. There'd be no more, uh, there'd be no more. Um, spectator states. There would be in fact states would not be states would only the the, the whole idea of states would only be important in this to the degree that they're important to, to voters. And in and and in in our age Uh, what state you live in is not usually a a particularly important part of your political identity. It it was in 1789 when most people never got more than a couple of hundred miles or a couple of score miles from where they were born. (coughs) But now, uh, a lot of things are more important to people than their state. Once once the National Popular Vote Compact takes effect, this will have an effect on on, the, on uh, the money problem, for example. It won't affect how money is raised, but it will affect how money is spent. Uh, it will mean that instead of being able to raise money in the whole country, especially you know in Beverly Hills and, and New York, uh, and then take that money and funnel it into nine or 10 states where it, where it has a huge outsized impact, that money would have to be spread around the whole country. Maybe more money would be spent, maybe more money would be raised, although I've never heard of a presidential campaign that one day said to itself, oh, well, we've raised enough, we can stop now. Uh, There's a limit to how much money can be raised. And if that money has to be spread out in the whole country, its impact is going to be muted somewhat, maybe a lot. So that's an effect. It's it's going to, it's going to uh, have a big effect on turnout. We talk a lot about how, in, in the United States, our turnout is pathetic compared to other democracies. But actually, in the swing states, in the, in the battleground states, American voter turnout is kind of at British levels. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the spectator states the turnout is very low. So you have an enormous Im- increase in participation. And best of all, well, of course, you'd also, you wouldn't have the problem of electing somebody who received fewer votes than, than his or her opponent, uh, which has happened four times. Well, I think 38 people have been elected president of the United States. Four of them were elected with after having been defeated in the popular vote. That's more than 10%. It's rare. You know, ninety ten, but it's not—it's not as rare as people, as people think. And and we have increasingly had close calls in, in recent elections. Uh, do you want to ask the
1: question? Yeah, right? I was yeah? wondering how this
3: compact ensures that states keep their promises, keep their keep their promise of electing the, the president with the
1: most. Yeah,
2: vote? well, it would be a, the, the the compact would be a state law, and uh, interstate. Uh, 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 you can't withdraw from a from an interstate compact uh, except under the terms of that compact. And in this interstate compact, you can't withdraw from it between the during the general election season, from the end of the of the last convention to election day. You cannot withdraw. And this there's a there's a well established body of law uh, behind this. Uh, so it would be, it would be, it, it, would, it would be illegal uh, to do that. Um, it couldn't happen. Um, <clears throat> the best effect of this compact would be to energize politics in the whole country. You, you are. Uh, there is no point if you live in this state, or in New York, or in Texas, or in Mississippi. There is no point in. Getting together with your neighbors and having a coffee klatch and passing out leaflets in your neighborhood—there's no point in it. Why do it? Everybody knows which way your state is going. If you want to participate in the election in a meaningful way, you can give money, or you can go to a state that is a battleground state. Not everybody's in a position to do that. So you'd have a giant. There, what there is no limit, unlike money, what there's really no limit on is participation and and. Uh, public participation and, and, and volunteering. Uh, so that would, be, that would be a pretty big effect. And, then there's a, and another effect would be, I think, to, to, to build the morale of a country, to see that a change can really be made. And once that change were made, and once people absorbed the fact that they'd been able to do this impossible thing, elect the President the way we elect everybody else, I think that, that I think that there would be more interest, as there is already growing interest, in reforming some of the other parts of our political technology. Many of them embedded right in the Constitution. And we're seeing now we're seeing now that we 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 in a way we tried an experiment, a controlled experiment. Now I'm I'm now speaking as a, a Democrat and as a Obama supporter. But we After telling ourselves that we could just get the right guy, we got the right guy. Uh, I know know, there's a lot of things wrong with Obama, but it's not as if we are going to do better or have done better. This is about as good as it gets when it comes to picking a President. So we've tried that and we've seen and and, and now the weaknesses of the whole system are are, uh, apparent in what we call dysfunction and polarization, all those words which are merely words for politicians behaving in the ways that, that, that incentives tell them to behave. Uh, this, it's not some great moral failing that we've got, that we have dysfunction and paralysis. It's, it's the result of people responding to rewards and punishments that are built into a system. If we could If we could get this reform, And this is this is the gettable one. This this we could get this one by 2016. This is the gettable. I'm I'm all for I'm all for uh, campaign finance reform, uh, but and and lots of other things. But the Supreme Court stands in the way of those. And the it's going to. But if we can do this, I think that people will be energized to do a lot more. So that's my um, that's my little wrap about. Let me me ask you a
1: question quickly, and then we'll open it up to uh, the. Oh, by
2: the way, and this national popular vote movement, which is a mom and pop operation, it has it has no full time paid staff. uh, Well, except for some except for lobbyists that are that have been hired to work the state legislatures, and it's it's uh, it's poorly financed really. It's all paid for by the guy who came up with the idea, uh, because nobody really knows who who's going to benefit. Nobody really knows is this good, because the first question a politician asks is, is this good for my party? And it's hard to say which party it's good for. Now, the second question a politician asks often is, is it good for me? And one of the reasons I have high hopes for this reform is that the people who make it are going to be these state legislature, state legislators. In all but nine or ten states in a general election, they're nobodies. Nobody returns their calls from national headquarters because they're not in a swing state. But once once the election is truly national, they'll be somebody. So there's so they've got a reason to vote for this beyond uh, the high-minded reasons.
1: Rick, walk us quickly through how we get to this before 2016.
2: Well, you just have to get enough. Uh, right I mean, now, you've got
1: a list of, of prospects. So yes.
2: Yeah. All, right now, the focus is on getting uh, is on getting a first A red state, and then more red states. Uh, there are still two or three more blue states that that uh, ought to do this. Connecticut, for example, um, all the other New England states have already done it. Um, so with red states it could get up to almost 270 and then the, the, to get it over the finish line would, might have to be done by initiative and referendum and, initiative and referendum states uh, there's a plan um, I'd say the odds are probably better for 2020 than 2016 but 2016 is a real, real possibility
1: and are you really not having I mean do you really not have financing are there not Citizens out there who are well, lots opening of opening checkbooks for this.
2: Y- y- well, they haven't. Uh, uh, as I said, the, 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 it's being financed largely by the eccentric uh, professor of computer science at uh, Stanford who invented it. Mm-hmm. It's a guy named John Koza. Uh, he's a computer science professor out there. He he invented the scratch-off lottery ticket. And that made him a very rich man. And having degraded the morals of the country, lottery ticket he's trying to give back. Uh, he, there, there are other donors. Uh, Jonathan Soros, George Soros' son, has given you know a, a small amount, ten, twenty thousand dollars, something like that. Although that's enough to have a tea party. Uh, Campaign against this on the grounds that it's another Soros plot. Uh, it's not. I, I, it's been purpose. It's been purposely kept. Um, I mean, it's not. It's no secret. It's no secret. You can't have bills to change the way we elect the president passed by state legislatures and keep it a secret. But there, there hasn't been any any effort really to uh, to make it a great big, huge <laughs> public crusade yet. But a lot of the goo-goo organizations have endorsed it—the NAACP and League of Women Voters, and Common <coughs> Cause, and all that—they've they've all endorsed this. But it's not their main focus. This is this is just the main. This is the main focus of just this one group, National Popular Vote Inc., and to some extent the group Fair Vote, which is a general electoral reform group that I'm on the board of.
1: And do you have a website that would allow people who are interested in this to make there's, a contribution? Can I ask that? Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> actually, it, the, the nationalpopularvote.com um, website, which is a ter- pretty awful website, it's got a huge amount of material on it, including this gigantic 600 page book that, that uh, Koza and lots of other people wrote, which answers every possible question. About this plan and every possible objection, Uh, but it's it's that's 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 just substantive. Uh, Yeah, you could give money to Fair Vote. Fair Vote needs money. Uh, National Popular Vote doesn't really need money at this point, as far as
1: I can tell. Fairvote.org.
2: Fairvote.org.
1: Let me let me uh, ask that the persons who are students get first first crack. Yeah.
4: Thanks for being here. Long-time reader, first-time questioner. (laughs) (laughs) And if you would identify yourself. Yeah, sure. My name's Mitch. I'm a a first-year Master in Public Policy student here. Mm -hmm. Um, Among the changes that you sort of foresee in this new structure, one that I don't think you touched enough on is how the actual location of campaigns would change as a result of this. Right Mm -hmm. now, it's high-density areas in swing states. I think after this, it might change to where people are located, which is cities across the world, across the country. And our campaigns then going to have this rural-urban divide where you're getting after the place of most voters? And then if I'm a campaigner, I'm thinking, I want to focus on areas where my base is, I want to rally the base, and I want to focus on voter turnout in areas where I have a high density of people that are going to support me, which means possible Democratic candidates campaigning mostly in northern states, Republican candidates mostly focusing mainly in the south. And could that potentially polarize the country even more as campaigns are not crisscrossing each other as much?
2: Well, I think you have to look at the way campaigns are conducted at the state level. Um, the, the notion that under national popular vote, campaigns would be conducted in the big cities or that there would be this divide uh, ignores a couple of things. Um, it ignores the fact that uh, r- that only, what, about... Ten or fifteen percent of the population lives in big cities. Then there's maybe ten or fifteen that live in rural areas, and everybody else lives in this sort of um, suburban morass. That's the rest of the country. Uh, right now, as you say, campaigners go to they go to the medium, big, media markets in in the the, the swing states. They also they also make appearances everywhere else, sometimes more. When Hillary Clinton ran for senator in New York, she spent the great bulk of her time uh, upstate, in the, in the in the in the rural and small city areas of upstate. Um, it's also it's a question of cost per thousand for advertising. Uh, for advertising, you'd see just as much you'd see just as much of it if you were living in in a you know, in the desert in Wyoming as you would see in New York or Boston or Houston, because it's cost per thousand. It's actually often cheaper, actually, to buy the time per per eye, set of eyeballs. Uh, so I don't think that that would... And, and you would be... Every single vote is equally worth going after under this... Under, this, uh, uh, under a national... Uh, under a popular vote election. So you'd be an idiot to alienate people in, in rural areas or urban if you're a, a Democrat or in urban areas if you're a Republican there are a lot of Republicans in these big cities and there are a lot of Democrats out in the sticks and it's, it's true that, that, a, that a large part of uh, campaigning would be to mobilize your own base that's true now too and there are a lot of things that the national popular vote would not change and that's, that's one of them yes, you would go, you, you, you'd you want to energize your supporters in states that are now ignored. Um, but is that a bad thing? Yes.
3: Uh, my name is Sam. I'm
4: also first year a first-year National Public Policy student. I was curious, um, you talk about electing the president that we want as a country. So um, uh, we still have primary systems that are run by the parties. Um, I'm wondering, A, I guess if you're thinking that this would shift parties towards electing Towards nominating someone who's closer to the mainstream, uh, but the second part of that is, do you see this providing for the rise of the potential third-party candidate, or growing the party
3: system beyond our two
2: parties? No, I, on the latter, no. Um, <clears throat> the the two-party system is uh, essential to to a winner-take-all uh, situation. Uh, it's not, some, you know, it's not a conspiracy by monopolies. These are the, it, it's, but you know, monopoly parties trying to keep third parties out. Uh, the problem has always been that a third party in a presidential election or in any winner-take-all one, one seat or one office election, is that the, that politically, what a third party does is to draw votes from whoever is closer, to it. Uh, I'm also in favor of, of the. Uh, instant runoff voting reform, which would essentially solve that problem in which I, I don't think there's any reason why it, states could not adopt that. Well, there is actually a reason <laughs> under national popular vote. Uh, no, you've got to have, basically you've got to have a two-party system at the presidential level. And it's, in a, in a way, it's a misnomer to call it a two-party system. It should really be called a two-league system because American those American political parties are they're not like European political parties. They're you know they're they're electoral frameworks dictated by an electoral system, and and the idea is you you know you got to win the pennant in your league to go into the World Series. Uh, you know that's why it's perfectly reasonable for it was perfectly reasonable to for the for for Gore to keep. To keep uh, Ralph Nader out of the debates, um, so so it would it would not change that. There are other reforms at the state level. Reforms that that act that are also feasible uh, for multi-member district elections of the House. If you had multi-member districts for the House, then you could then you would, you would have room for for third parties, and if you had Uh, Instant runoff voting. You already have something like that in New York State, where where third party, where you have fusion voting, where a third party can co-nominate somebody from the from uh, the candidate of one of the major parties, and that way you can vote. If you're in New York, you can vote Working Families Party to send a message to 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 your candidate, or you can vote for the Conservative Party to send a message to the Republican side. And that opens up that that performs some of the same functions. It opens up the discussion. It gets more ideas out there. It lets people express their political opinions
1: more precisely. I'm a little confused though. Why would it not empower the third party if it's a you know if whoever wins the most votes nationally wins?
2: Well why doesn't it do that on the state level?
1: Well what I mean is for instance Teddy Roosevelt, Bull Moose Party. Mm-hmm. There are three credible parties. You, in, the, in this case, the third party had a very popular guy ahead. And under your system, if he had won more votes than the other two, he would have been elected president, right?
2: Strangely, strange to say, yes, he didn't. Well, like the current system, it's based on plurality. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the arguments you sometimes hear <coughs> made against the national popular vote is. Well, that somebody who didn't get a majority might be might be elected. Well, that happens yeah. more often than not in, uh, in, in the, the system we've got. But so a lot of the, you know it would work. The, this this presidential election would work like a, like an election in a big state writ large. And in and in the in the big states there isn't much in the way of of third party activity except in those fusion mm. states.
1: Yes.
0: Natalie Brand, I'm a mid career. Confusion
2: or resistance I certainly foresee confusion because mm. because <laughs> even though this is a fairly simple idea once you grasp it it's it's uh, it's weirdly hard to grasp um, and it's e- it's fairly easily demagogue uh, because you, you you can say well you think you're so much smarter than the framers you know what mm-hmm. what's what, why do you want to reject the work of the framers people people are not terribly well informed about the framers uh, and their intentions, and they're not even aware, many people are not even aware that the winner-take-all uh, state-by-state thing isn't in the Constitution. Um, so I do, th- I do think that as, as this approaches actually coming, getting to 270, then it's going to be a big deal, as it is, as it is now. Uh, you know, if you look, if you look at if you look at the uh, if you go to the New York Times website and, and search, you can find usually a squib, or even maybe a, in the case of the New York, New York, uh, I don't think it was on the front page, but you know maybe the front page of the of the Metro section about the passage of this in the state legislature. Uh, it's just not the kind of it, it, it's not the kind of story that. Um, that is obviously attractive to Fox News and MSNBC uh, and, and CNN. It will be once it gets close. And so the strategy of getting, of doing it slowly and kind of growing, growing a larger and larger number of people who understand it and being able to present it at length, quietly, to state legislators and, and politicians, people like Newt Gingrich, um, who, who get it and come on board? Uh, that's when that strategy, one hopes, will, will pay off. Let oh. me uh, do a
3: follow up on that because uh, I've been a supporter of this for a long time, and this is an issue that I've raised with John Koza and with our
2: friends at and, um which is that even uh, what? you, I'm Alex are You and I. Oh yeah, of course, yes, sir. Sorry. Yeah, I hope you're not disappointed I'm not wearing my tuxedo. <laughs> 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 Deep, deeply disappointed.
3: Um, I've done a lot of speaking about this, even in states that have passed it. Okay? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I find, and this follows up on, on the previous question, which is why I'm doing this two-finger mm. two, two intervention, is that even in states that have passed it, nobody knows about it. I would say that We're lot, in one of those states. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, gi- I gave a talk last year on the Harvard campus uh, about this, there are about a hundred people there. I, uh, how many people you know know about the national Congress? Well, there were two. Well,
2: it did a little better here, but that's because it's Kennedy School.
3: Um, but uh, but you know, it was an event that was open to the public.
2: Did, did I, now, have I missed any really salient points here that you want to chime in? No, with? no, I'm
3: just wondering. I'm worried. No, no, no. I don't. I don't think you've missed any. But I'm, I'm worried about. I mean, you know, you, you were sort of saying, well, as we get closer. It'll, you know, it'll get more into the news. I'm just, I'm concerned that, you know, even, I mean, even in the states that are supporting it, most people don't know about it. So mm-hmm. it looks kind of like a stealth move, uh, or a move among political elites, and that's, that's not the way we want to make do democratic reform. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm, I, I don't have an answer. I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are.
2: Um. Well, you're, you're, you're right that nobody. Knows about it, Uh, but people do. People do favor. People of all parties do favor electing the president by popular vote. Um, Once, I I think that 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 it does reflect the the wishes of the great majority of Americans. The outcome of it. Now, it's kind of a Rube, Rube Goldberg contraption to get there, and. And there's, there's, it's a ripe field for sowing confusion, that, that, the the Rube Goldberg contraption. Um, I I think, I don't, I don't, I, I, you know, the the thing that I was worried about would would be that somehow it would suddenly turn into a big national story, there'd be extreme hysteria, because the, 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 the initial reaction generally of the Tea Party and also even a whole lot of Democrats too is negative. And if you had a huge hysterical outburst it could have smothered it in the cradle. but it's a little bit out of the cradle now.
1: Have, have Hannity and Limbaugh and O'Reilly staked out a position on this yet?
2: They, they as far as I know they have I, I, I think on a couple of those shows it it's, it's might maybe come up you know for a two or three minute segment of the five you know or, or one of those sit around the table shows. Um, it's been talked about, I've talked about it on, on MSNBC, um, but it hasn't been, it just hasn't been a fixture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, p- generally, these structural arguments, the, the, you know, w- one thing that's behind the, this kind of reform and a lot of other reforms like uh, multi member districts and that kind of thing, Tom they're not in, about in the good guys and bad guys, so they don't make they don't make good uh, gladiatorial journalism
1: so anyway you know I think the national popular vote thing is the only way that those of us that want the one person one vote principle to work I mean I think there's been 500 or so times that bills have been introduced in Congress to get rid of the Electoral College so I Mm -hmm. think that's off the table right And I think you're right as they get closer to the 270 you'll get more public attention to it Um, But I think you'll also get harder thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, for the most part, takes place at the decision-maker level. So, and one of the obvious kind of calculations will be kind of the party's sense of wasted votes, right, in terms of under the current arrangement, which party is kind of throwing more votes away because it's an electoral college vote rather than a popular vote. Mm Do you have any numbers on that?
2: Well, uh, in the presidential election, because of 2000, there's, um, there's a general sense that, uh, that the Republicans, that the Democrats throw away more votes. Um, obviously, in the case of 2000, more people voted for Gore than voted for Bush. Therefore, a lot of those Gore votes uh, were thrown away. They didn't affect the outcome. It's also true, though, that if there had been a shift in the Kerry-Bush election in Ohio of thirty thousand votes from uh, from Bush to Kerry, that Kerry would have won the election while losing the popular vote by three million.
4: Um, I'm pretty confident in saying right now
2: that the
4: Democrats are throwing away more votes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they certainly um, I'm sorry, are.
4: I'm the Republicans? Me, the, the Republicans are throwing way more. Please, please expound. Republican more. margins in the states that they won were significantly bigger. So the, so the Democrats were, were, were winning.
2: Um, uh, you don't think that's true? Those are much smaller states. Yeah. What's that?
3: Those are much smaller
4: states. Right, that has to be valid. So, so when, when, right. yeah, when a Democrat runs away with California, they waste a lot of, a lot of votes. Problem. When they run away with New York, they waste a lot of votes. When they win Pennsylvania, they waste a lot of votes. Mm-hmm.
2: But the Republicans waste a lot of votes when they when they, you know, when they carry Oklahoma and or get Wyoming. two or three hundred. In those, yeah. you can take two or three of those small states, and they equal the, the Democratic margin in California.
1: Yeah. Um, we want to get a few more people on here. Yes, yes. Chris, you and then yeah. identify. Chris um, hi. Hi.
0: Um. <laughs> So back to two questions. Number one, in terms of analysis of this by someone other than the 600-page tome, has such a thing been done in a kind of nonpartisan analytical way? If so, what's the Achilles' heel if there is one? And then try one more time on this. Why the unbranding, the uncampaign campaign secret and, and we're not. I'm putting "secret" in quotes. It doesn't make total sense in the modern world of branding and selling things oh. that you don't have. And I'm not you personally, mm-hmm. but this campaign does not have kind of a strategy for education of the popular um, populace. But so on the academic side, who studied it, and I still don't get why there isn't more of an attempt to.
2: Campaign in a nonpartisan way before the partisans get a hold of it. Mm. Um Well, there's um, do, 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 what was the, the first part. Was Has the, there been an academic,
1: a discussion, yeah, there, academic analysis? There hasn't
2: been that. very much that I know of. Uh, there's been some. There's been there have been some uh, law review pieces, some a, a couple of political science pieces. There have been think tank. Stuff I wouldn't call them careful. There's a guy named Hans von Spakovsky or something like that at the um, at the Heritage Foundation. Not much. Think more tangy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it um, there there is you know there's there's uh, there, there's uh, the, the, the two the two brothers. There, there, there's there's a certain amount of academic writing about it, and it's actually rooted. Half of the idea comes from oh God, what's his name? The, you know the, the two brothers, law professors, Akil Amar and Akil Amar. right? And 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 his brother, actually Akil Amar is the guy who came up with the idea of 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 state laws that that would that would uh, state laws that would assign you know our states' votes to whoever wins the national popular vote, and Coza came up with the interstate compact half of it, which is what. Which is what turns it into something that really can happen that states can do without unilaterally disarming. Um, so I don't. I mean, it's a, it's a theoretical construct right now. There, there are you you can there are laboratories in, in, in the sense that that there are large states that elect their their governors this way. So there's really a, I'm not sure how much there is to learn about uh, the notion of electing. By plurality, electing a single office by plurality popular vote, we, we've we we've run that experiment for 200 years, and we know pretty well uh, uh, what it takes. As for the as for the notion of a big public campaign, um, well, there's only so many resources. It actually, it, it, I guess I guess this sounds dread elitist, but. When you sit down with state legislators in a calm atmosphere, that has not been polluted by a Fox News craziness or an MSNBC—not that they're equivalent—get <laughs> me wrong. Um, it's interesting. It's it's wonder. It's like going. It's like a jury. It's like it's like. I'm sure you, many of you had the experience of being on jury duty, and you go into that room, and it's always inspiring. How seriously it's. That that's taken, and how with, you know, with how much goodwill is brought to that process. If you sit down with state legislators in a calm atmosphere and talk to them about this, and have them consider it on its merits, uh, it, they they tend they often tend to like it. Let me uh, we, whichever party they're we're, from. we're
1: running out of time. So I've got one here, one there, and one there. Okay.
2: So after is a
3: master's student here. Both in your initial speech and in some of the questions that followed, you've linked this to additional reforms: mm-hmm. run off voting, multi-member districts, financial reform. Do you clearly that can inspire some people, but do you worry that linking this initiative to those other reforms can break apart the coalition to get this? Reform
2: well, they're only linked in my mind. Um, they're they're not linked by the group that's that's pushing this. Uh, they're linked, in my mind, in the sense that we, we see our system as handed down from Mount Sinai. And also, you know, we, and we, we, we tend not to learn from what, the way other countries do it. If I had my way, I'd just translate the German constitution into English and make that ours. And I think that's the most, uh, that's the, the best constitution in the world. Uh, best Best out. constitution
4: Americans ever wrote. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's, that's the point. That's
2: the point, that Americans did write it. And they, and if the fr- framers were around now, they'd write that constitution. I mean, it's important to remember that there was no such thing as proportional representation. The word was used when Madison was in favor of having more senators for the big states than the small states. He called it proportional representation, but the, uh, the, the modern notions of proportional representation didn't come about till till Mill and, and later. Uh, and the British, same with the British, you know, the only countries in the world that have the single-member district thing, essentially, are either uh, they're either England, I mean, they're either Britain or former British colonies or Latin American countries that have mindless, mindlessly adopted the American, the U.S. model. Uh, so it's linked in my mind, and I th- and, and I do think and hope that that once this reform <clears throat> kicks in, that it'll make people think uh, more broadly about imitating the framers rather than you know, worshipping
1: them. Emory. <laughs> Hi, I'm
0: <the> Emory Wilkins. <laughs> By the way,
2: I'll stick around if you for, for the hardcore. Okay. <laughs> <at your end. laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and I'm just, so this is sort of about this, but I'm wondering if you can just sort of back up a little bit. You've written a lot about this in the New Yorker. There may be states where this has not been covered at all. I'm just wondering if you could give us your assessment of political coverage. Um, sort in of general? stand currently? I'm sorry.
2: Well, I, do, I think that one of the, the great, you know, looking at it from, from my you know, electoral reform perspective, I I do think that uh, political coverage tends to ignore these factors, tends to ignore the ways in which the the hydraulics of the system limit and affect politicians. And since, by definition, the United States Constitution and the way we do things is perfect, when things go wrong, it must be because of bad people. Mm -hmm. It can't be because of a bad system. So I think, and I think that, that political journalism, uh, decreasingly, there's more, more and more awareness of this, in, you know, reading about the, uh, there's more coverage of how the filibuster uh, distorts policy, how, uh, how, the, how the, the swing state, spectator state phenomenon distorts policy. There's more of that than there used to be. But it's still basically a morality tale about good and bad. And it's still basically... So you still hear, and it drives me nuts, you still hear, well, if only, if only, if only Obama was more like LBJ. You know, if only he could get in there and talk to Everett Dirksen and, you know, get something done, like LBJ did. <laughs> Let's leave aside the Vietnam War just for the moment. But... Um, yeah, LBJ did do all that, and it made, probably made some marginal difference. But the main thing was he had a huge majority in the House and a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate for an extended period. Once he lost that, then it didn't matter how many, uh, you know, glasses of bourbon he had with Everett Dirksen. After that, he got nothing done. So, you know, I think I think that there, there's a, or and, and uh, another example, I guess, of this sort of pundit blindness is. The often sensible Tom Friedman, who's always pushing for some for like a centrist third party, you know, ignoring the fact that we already have a centrist party, the, the Democrats, <laughs> um, but also that the what the effect of that, the effect of that would be would be to 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 per- permanently establish uh, a right wing party as the governing party. So, you know, I think there's I think there's too little of this kind of analysis in, in day-to-day political journalism. But there's a lot more of it than there used
1: to be. Celestine, last one. Um, yeah, Celestine Bolin. I just, I'm just wondering in terms
0: of uh, popularizing the campaign, would it help or would it hurt if some big political figure took up this
2: cause? It depends on who the political figure is and when. It certainly helps right now that Newt Gingrich is, is taking it up. You know, Bill Clinton and the Barack Obama are are for this quietly, um, but wisely, especially Obama. I mean, it would suddenly be Obama vote <laughs> if Obama were to, to come out for it.
1: Um, what about the Bushes and Jimmy Carter?
2: Jimmy Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter's for it too, but, you know, they, these are, they, I think you lose as much as you gain. Yeah. They want to, they, 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 when the, you know, once Once, once there's a wave for this, then kind of like the like the animals boarding the ark, you know, two by two, Republicans and Democrats can board the ark. Uh, But to have it be, to tie this up with particular personalities now, uh, would be extremely risky. And actually, another
0: question on primaries: What would what effect do you think this would have on the party primary? I mean, which are also now skewed by mm. small states. Well, it
2: wouldn't change that. It would, it would only change the things that changes. It wouldn't change the things that doesn't change. I mean,
0: except for some reports. I mean, as the yeah. parties look ahead to the general, they might reconsider their...
2: You know, the yeah, to... I'm not sure how that would work. Yeah, they'd. there'd be more... Um, I'm not sure. If th- this is probably too granular uh, for, for the way party people think, but yeah, they'd want a, they'd want a candidate, it's presumably now they want a candidate who could do well in the swing states. Uh, under this, they'd want a candidate who could do well in the whole country, and what, what difference that would make, I'm not sure. I do think it would, it would cause people to look at the nominating system, which, which is part of the constitution, broadly understood. Uh, and is a, is more ridiculous than the, the written constitution. Uh, a change like this might make people think more about about that. But it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Uh, change
1: I, I have to say that hearing this gives me more hope about the American political future than anything I've heard recently. So, thank you, Rick Hertzberg. <laughs>